0: Without having to break the bank, inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. Twenty watt amplifiers for under fifty dollars. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under eighty. Guitars themselves for under ninety dollars. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Olean on Public Radio. Once more, we head to those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're
1: listening to KZOM. Recording by Mark Nelson. Section 3. The Monsters of Moyenne, by Arthur J. Burks. Chapter 6. VANISHING SHIPS Prester Klieg, ordered to Madagascar from the secret room, had been merely an operative, honored above others in that he had been one of the few at that time ever to visit the secret room. Now, however, because he had walked closer to Moyenne than anyone else, he assumed leadership almost by natural right, and the men who had once deferred to him took orders from him. "'Gentlemen?' he snapped while the last words of Moyen still hung in the air of the secret room. We must fight Moyen from here. The best brains in the United Americas are gathered here, and if Moyen can be beaten, if he can be beaten, he will be beaten from the secret room. A sigh from the lips of Professor Manuel. The President of the United Americas nodded his head, as though he too mutely gave authority into the hands of Prester Klieg. The other secret agent shifted slightly, but said nothing. "'I have been away a year,' said Cleeg "'as you know, and many things have come into regular use since I left—Professor Manuel's machine, for example, upon which he was working when I departed under orders. There will be further use for it in our struggle with Moyenne. Professor, will you kindly range the ocean, beginning at once, and see how many of these monsters of Moyen we have to contend with?' Professor Manuel turned back to his instruments, which he fondled with gentle, loving hands. "'We have nothing with which to combat the attacking forces of Moyen,' went on Klieg. "'Save antiquated airplanes, and such obsolete warships as are available. These will be mere fodder for the guns, or rays, or whatever it is that Moyen uses in his subs. Thousands, perhaps millions, of human lives will be lost. But better this than that Moyen rule the West! Better this than that our women be given into the hands of this mob as spoils of war!" From the secret agents a murmur of assent. And then that voice again, startling, clear, with the slightest suggestion of some oriental accent in the secret room. "'Do not depend too much, gentlemen,' it said upon your antiquated warships. See, I am merciful, in that I do not allow you to send them against me loaded with men to be slaughtered or drowned. Professor Manuel, I would ask you to turn that plaything of yours and gaze upon the fleet of obsolete ships anchored in Hampton roads. In passing, Professor, I venture to guess that the secret of how I am able to talk with you gentlemen, here in your secret room, is no secret at all to you. Now look!" The secret agent's gasp again in consternation. From the white lips of mouse-like Manuel came mumbled words, even as his hands worked with lightning speed. His machine is simply a variation of my own, and, gentlemen, compatriots, with it he could as easily project himself, bodily, here into the room with us something like a suppressed scream from one of the men present. A cold hand of ice about the heart of Prester Klieg, but the words of Professor Manuel were limbed on the retina of his brain in letters of fire. Suppose Moyen were to project himself into the secret room. But he could not. He was no fool, and even these secret agents, most of whom were old and no longer strong, would have torn him limb from limb. But those words of Manuel set whirling once more, in a new direction, the thoughts of Prester Klieg. "'Mr. President, gentlemen,' it was the voice of Professor Manuel. All eyes turned again to the screen upon which the professor worked his miracles, which today were commonplaces, which yesterday had been undreamed of. Every secret agent recognized the outlines of Hampton Roads, with Norfolk and its towering buildings in the background. And the obsolete warships riding silently at anchor in the roadstead. For three years they had been there, while a procrastinating cabinet, Congress, and Senate had debated their permanent disposal. They represented millions of dollars in money and were utterly worthless. Prester Klieg, looking at them now, could see them putting out to sea, loaded with brave visaged men volunteering to go to sure destruction to feed the rapacity of Moyen's hordes, men going out to sea in tubs, singing. But these ships were silent, no plumes of smoke from their funnels, like floating mausoleums filled with dead hopes, shells of past and departed glories. The beating of waves against their sides could plainly be heard. The anchor chains squeaked rustily in the hawse-holes. Wind sighed through regal, towering superstructures, and no man walked the decks of any one of them. With bated breath the secret agents watched. Why had Moyenne bidden them turn their attention to these shells of erstwhile naval grandeur? This time no gasps broke from the lips of the secret agents. Not even the sound of breathing could be heard. Just the sighing of wind through the superstructures of a hundred ships, The whispering waves against rusted bulkheads. Almost imperceptibly at first, the towering dreadnought in the foreground began to move. Slowly the water swirling about her, she backed away from her anchor, tightening the curve of the anchor chain. Water quivered about the point of the chain's contact with the waves. Quickly the eyes of the secret agent swept along the street of ships. The same backward motion of dragging against their anchor-chains was visible at the bow of each warship. With not a soul aboard them, the ships were waking into strange and awesome life, dragging at their anchors, like hounds pulling at leashes to be free and away. How are they doing it? It was almost a whisper from the President. Some electromagnetic force, sir, stated Prester Klieg. Professor Blaine, that is your province please note what is happening, and advise us at once if you see how they are doing it." A grunt of affirmation from surly, obese Professor Blaine. All eyes turned back again to the miracle of the moving ships. One by one, with crashes which echoed and re-echoed through the secret room, the anchor chains of the dreadnoughts parted. The ends of them swung from the prows of the warships, while the severed portions splashed into the roads and the waters hid them from view. The great dreadnought in the foreground swung slowly about until her prow was pointed in the direction of the open sea, and though no sea was running, no smoke rose from her funnels, she got slowly, ponderously under way and started out the roads. Behind her, in formation, the other ships swung into line. In a matter of seconds, Faster than any of these vessels had ever traveled before, they were racing in column for the open Atlantic. And from the sound apparatus came wails and shrieks of terror, the lamentations of men and women frightened as they had never been frightened before. The shores behind the moving column of ships was moment by moment growing blacker with people, a black sea of people whose faces were white as chalk with terror but on, out to sea, moved the column of brave ships. A new note entered into the picture, as from all sides airplanes of many makes swooped in, and swept back and forth over the moving ships, while hooded heads looked out of pits and faces of pilots were aghast at what they saw. A ghost column of ships, moving out to sea, speed increasing moment by moment unbelievably. Even now, five minutes after the first dreadnought had started seaward, the wake of each ship spread away on either hand in the two sides of a watery triangle, whose walls were a dozen feet high, racing for the shores with all the sullen majesty of tidal waves. The crowds gave back, and their screams rose into the air in a frightened roar of appalling sound. Even now, so rapidly did the warships travel that many of the planes could throttle down, so that they flew directly above the heaving decks of the runaway warships. "'Get word to them,' cried Prester Cleek suddenly, "'get word to them that if they follow the ships out to sea not a pilot will escape alive!' One of the secret agents rose and hurried from the secret room, traveling at top speed for the first of the many doors en route to the broadcasting tower, from which all the planes could be reached at once. Prester Klieg turned back to the magic screen of Manuel. The warships, water thrown aside by the lifting thrust of their forefeet in mountains that raced landward with ever-increasing fury, were clearing the roads and swinging south by east, heading into the wastes of the Atlantic. As they cleared the land and open water for unnumbered miles lay ahead, the speed of the mighty ships increased to a point where they rode as high on the water as racing launches, and the creaking and groaning of their rusty bolts and spars were a continual paean of protest in the sound apparatus accompanying the showing of the miracle on the screen. "'They're heading straight for the spot where that super-submarine lies,' said the President, and no one answered him. Prester Klieg, watching, was racing over in his mind what he could recall of his country's armament. Warships were useless. As was being proved here before their eyes. But there still remained airplanes in countless numbers, which could be diverted from ocean travel and from routine business to battle this menace of Moyenne. But... he shuddered as he pictured in his mind's eye the meeting of his country's flower of flying manhood with the monsters of Moyenne. His eyes, as he thought, were watching the racing of those ocean greyhounds out to sea. They were now out of sight of land, and still some of the planes followed them. A half-hour passed, and then.... The American pilots, in obedience to the radio signals, turning back from this strange phenomenon of the ghost column of capital ships. Simultaneously, out of the sky dead ahead, dropped the first flight of Moyenne's aero-subs. At the same moment, the mysterious power which had dragged the ships to sea was withdrawn, and the warships, with no hands to guide them, swung whither they willed, and floated in as many directions as there were ships under their forward momentum. There were a score of collisions, and some of the ships were in sinking condition even before the aerosubs began their labors. The remaining ships floated high out of the water, because they carried no ballast, and from all sides the aero-subs of Moyen settled to the task of destruction—destruction which was simply a warning of what was to come. Moyen's manner of proving to the Americas the fact that he was all-powerful. "'God! What fools!' cried Prester Klieg. The rearmost of the American aviators had looked back, had seen the first of the aero-subs drop down among the doomed ships. Instantly he turned out to sea again, signaling as he did so to the nearest other planes. And in spite of the radio warning, a hundred planes answered that signal and swept back to investigate this new mystery. They're going to death, groaned the President. Yes, said Cleeg softly, but it saves us ordering others to death. Perhaps we may learn something of value as we watch them die. CHAPTER Seven, GOLDEN OBLIVION This, said Prester Klee, as coldly precise as a judge pronouncing sentence of death, will precipitate the major engagement with Moyen's forces. The fools to rush in like this when they have been warned! But even so, they are magnificent! The pilots of the aero-subs must instantly have noticed the return of the American pilots, for some of the subs, which had dropped to the ocean surface, rose again almost instantly, and swept into battle formation above the drifting hulks of the warships. The Americans were wary. They drew together like frightened chickens when a hawk hovers above them, and watched the activities of the aerosubs, every move of each one being at the same time visible and audible to the secret agents in the capital's secret room. The arrow-subs which had submerged singled out their particular prey among the floating ships, and the secret agents, trying to see how each separate act of destruction was accomplished, watched the arrow-sub in the foreground, which happened to be concentrating on the dreadnought which had led the ghost-march of the warships out to sea. The arrow-sub circled a swaying dreadnought as a shark circles a wreck and through the walls of the aerosub the watchers in the secret room could see the four-man crew of the thing. Grim-faced men, men of the Orient they plainly were, coldly concentrating on the work in hand. Their faces were those of men who are merciless, even brutal, with neither heart nor compassion of any kind for weaker ones. One man maneuvered the aerosub, while the other three concentrated on the apparatus in the nose of the hybrid vessel. See, spoke Prester Klieg again, if you can tell what manner of ray they use and how it is projected. That's your province, General Munson. From the particular secret agent named, who was expert for war in the membership of the secret room, came a short grunt of affirmation. A few murmured words i'll be able to tell more about it when i see how they operate when they are flying that black streak under water well i must see it out of the water and then but here general munson ended for the aero sub which they were especially watching had got into action against the dreadnought the aero sub was motionless and submerged just off the port bow of the dreadnought The three men inside the aerosub were working swiftly and efficiently with the complicated but minute machinery in the nose of their transport. "'It can be controlled, then, this ray,' said Munson, interrupting himself. "'Watch!' From the nose of the aerosub leapt, like a streak of black lightning, that ebon agency of death. It struck the prow of the battleship, and the prow, as far aft as the well-deck, simply vanished from sight disintegrated. It was as though it had never been. And for a second, so swiftly had it happened, the water of the ocean held the impression that portion of the warship had made, as an explosion leaves a crater in the soil of earth. Then a drumming roar as the sea rushed in to claim its own. The roaring, as of a Niagara as the waters claimed the ship, rushing down passageways into the hold, possessing the warship with all the invincible, speedy might of the sea. Mingled with this roaring was the shivering, vibratory sound which Prester Klieg had experienced in his half-dream. The sound was so intense that it fairly rocked the secret room to its furthermost cranny. For a second the dreadnought, wounded to death, seemed to shudder, to hesitate then to move backward, as though wincing from her death-blow. It was the pound of the inrushing waters which did it. Then up came the stern of the mighty ship as she started her last long plunge into the depths. But attention had swung to another warship, on the starboard beam of which another sub had taken up position. Again the ebb and streak of death from her blunt nose, smashing in and through the warship directly amidships, cutting her in twain, as though the black streak had been a pair of shears, the warship a strip of tissue-paper. Up went the prow and the stern of this one, and together, the water separating the two parts as it rushed into the gap, the broken warship went down to its final resting-place. Abruptly, Professor Manuel swung back to the American planes which had come back to investigate the activities of the aero-subs. And on the screen, in the midst of the battle formation into which the pilots had swept too hurriedly, the secret agents could see the faces of those pilots. White as chalk with fear, mouths open in gasping unbelief. One man, a pale-faced youth, was the first to recover. He stared round at his compatriots, and plainly, through the sound apparatus in the secret room, came his swift radio signals. Attack! Who will follow me against these people?" His signals were very plain. So too were the answers of the other pilots, and the heart of Prester Cleeg swelled with pride as he listened to the answering signals, and counted them, discovered that every last pilot there present elected to stay with this youngster, to avenge their country for this contemptuous insult which had been put upon her by the rape of Hampton Roads. Into swift formation they swept, and with these planes all planes in use were required by franchise of operating companies to be equipped for the emergencies of war swung into an echelon formation, the youthful pilot leading by mutual consent. They swept at full speed toward the warships, four of which had by this time been sent to destruction, one of which had appeared to vanish utterly in the space of a single heartbeat, so quickly that for a second or two the shape of its bilge, the bulge of its keel, was visible in the face of the deep, and openly challenged the aero subs Muzzles of compressed air-guns projected from the wingtips of the planes. Buttons were pressed which elevated the muzzles of guns arranged to fire upward from either side the fighting-pits, twin guns that were fired downward from the same central magazine the only guns in use in the Americas which fired in opposite directions at the same time. But for a few moments the aerosubs refused combat. Their speed was terrific, dazzling. They eluded the thrusts, the dives and plunges of the American ships as easily as a swallow eludes the dive of a buzzard. It came to Prester Klieg, however, that the aerosubs were merely playing with the Americans, that, when they elected to move, the planes would be blasted from the sky as easily as the warships were being erased from the surface of the Atlantic. One by one, as methodically as machines, the aero-sub-pilots blasted the warships into nothingness. They had their orders, and they went about their performance with a rigidity of discipline which astounded the secret agents. They had been ordered to destroy the warships, and they were doing that first would go on to completion of this task no matter how many American planes buzzed about their ears. But one by one, as the warships sank, the aerosubs which had either sunk or erased them made the surface, and leapt into space with a snapping back of wings that was horribly businesslike as to sound, and climbed up to take part in the fight against the American planes which must inevitably come. The last warship, cut squarely in two from stem to stern along her center, as though split thus by a bolt of lightning, fell apart like pieces of cake, and splashed down, sinking away while the spume of her disintegration rolled back from her fallen sides in white-crested waves. It exemplifies the policies of Moyen," said Prester Klieg, for his conquest of the world is a conquest of destruction. The last arrow-sub took to the sky, and the Americans rushed into battle with fine disregard for what they knew must be certain death. They were not fools, exactly, and they had seen, but not understood, the manner in which those gallant old hounds of the sea had been erased from existence. But in they went, plunging squarely into the heart of the arrow-sub's leading formation, which formation consisted of three arrow-subs, Flying a wing and wing formation. The young Americans signaled with upraised hand, and the American pilots made their first move. Every plane started rolling at dazzling speed on the axis of its fuselage, while bullets spewed from the guns that fired through the propellers. Bullets smashed into the leading aero subs with no apparent effect. Though for a second it seemed that the central aerosub of the leading formation hesitated for a moment in flight. Then, swift as had that black streak flashed from the nose of aerosub submerged, a streak darted from the nose of the central aerosub and glistened in the sun like molten gold. It touched the youngster who had called for volunteers for his attack against this strange enemy. It touched his plane, and the plane vanished instantly while for a fraction of a second the pilot was visible in his place, in the posture of sitting, hand on a row of buttons which did not exist, head forward slightly as he aimed guns that had vanished. Then the pilot, still living, apparently unhurt, plunged down eight thousand feet to the sea. The water geysered up as he struck, then closed over the spot, and the gallant American youngster had become the first victim in battle of the monsters of Moyenne. Victim of a slender lancet of what seemed to be golden lightning. He could have killed the pilot aloft there, came quietly from Munson, but he chose to pull his plane away from around him. Their control of the ray is miraculous. As though to confirm the statement of Munson, the leading aerosub struck again, a second plane. The plane vanished, but from the spot where it had flown, not even a bit of metal or of a man sufficiently large to be seen by the delicate recording instruments of Manuel dropped out of the sky. The ray of gold was a ray of oblivion, if the minions of Moyenne willed. CHAPTER Eight, Charmian. Prester Klieg," came suddenly into the secret room the voice of far-distant Moyenne, "'you will at once make a change in your rules regarding the admission of other than secret agents to the secret room. You will at once see that Charmian Kane, sister of your friend, is allowed to enter.' "'God Almighty!' a cry of agony from the lips of Prester Klieg. He had not forgotten Charmian, but simply had had to move so swiftly that he had put her out of his mind. For a year he had not seen her, and an hour or two more could not matter greatly. And her brother Carlos, went on the voice. See that he too is admitted. I wish, for certain reasons, that Charmian come unharmed through the direct attack I am about to make against your country. I confess that save for this ability to speak to you, I am unable to work any damage to the secret room, which is therefore the safest place for Charmian Kane. Carlos Kane is being spared because he is her brother. There was no mistaking the import of this sinister command from Moyenne. He had singled out Charmian, the best loved of Prester Kleague, for his attentions and that he was sure of the success of his attack against the United Americas was proved by the calm assurance of his voice, and the fact that, concentrating on the attack as he must be, he still found time for a thought of Charmian Kane. The hand of ice which had seldom been absent from the heart of Cleeg since he had first seen and heard the voice of Moyenne, gripped him anew. Blood pounded maddeningly in his temples. Cold sweat bathed his body. But the rest of the secret agents, save to freeze into immobility when the hated voice spoke, gave no sign. They had worries of their own, for no instructions had been given that they bring their own loved ones into the sanctuary of the secret room. As though answering the thoughts of the others, the hated voice spoke again. I regret that I cannot arrange for sanctuary for the loved ones of all of you, for you are gallant antagonists. Why save the few when the many must perish? For I know you will not surrender, however much I approve to you, that I am invincible. But Charmian Kane must be saved." "'God!' whispered "Cleeg, "'God!' Then spoke General Munson. I think this ray which the Moyonets use is a variation of the principle used in the intricate machinery of Professor Manuel though how they render it visible I do not know. But it doesn't matter, and may be only a blind. You'll note that when the black streak, or the golden ray, strikes anything that thing instantly disintegrates. A certain pitch of resonance will break a pane of glass. It's a matter of vibration, solely, wherein the molecules composing any object animate or inanimate are hurled in all directions instantaneously. Professor Manuel's apparatus, the vibration retarder, is able to recapture the vibrations, speeding outward endlessly through space, and to reconstruct and draw back to visibility the objects destroyed by this visible vibratory ray, whatever it is. This problem, then, falls into the province of Professor Manuel. Through the heart and soul of Prester Klieg, there suddenly flowed a great surge of hope. General Munson, If you will operate the machinery of the Vibration Retarder, I wish to talk with Professor Manuel." Instantly, efficiently, without a word in reply to the eager command of Prester Klieg, General Munson relieved Professor Manuel at the apparatus which Manuel called the Vibration Retarder, his invention which he had combined with audible teleview to complete this visual miracle of the secret room. Professor Manuel stepped to where Prester Klieg was sitting. Prester Clee put fingers to his lips for silence, and an expression of surprise crossed the wrinkled, dead-white face of the professor. Before Clee could speak, however, there came a signal from somewhere outside the secret room, a signal which said that the doors were being opened and that a personage was coming. The secret agents looked at one another in surprise, for every man who had a right to be inside the secret room was already present. I know said Cleeg, his face a mask of terror. It is Charmian and Carlos Kane. Moyen, the devil, has managed to make sure of obedience to his orders." The secret agents turned back to the screen, upon which the view of the first aerial brush of the American flyers with the minions of Moyenne in their aero-subs was drawing to a terrible close. For as the aero-sub commanders had played with the warships, which had no human beings aboard them, So now did they play with the planes of the Americas. One American flyer, startled into a frenzy by the fate of his fellows, put his helicopter into action, and leapt madly out of the midst of the battle. Instantly an aero-sub zoomed skyward after him. Again that golden streak of light from the nose of an aero-sub, and the helicopter vanes and the slender staff upon whose tip they whirled vanished shorn short off above the vein grooves in the top of the wing. The plane dropped away, fluttering like a falling leaf for a moment, before the aviator started his three propellers again. A cheer broke from the lips of Prester Cleeg as he watched. The commander of that particular aero-sub, apparently contemptuous of this flyer who had tried to cut out of the fight, allowed him to fall away unmolested and the American, driven berserk by the casual, contemptuous treatment accorded him by this strange enemy, zoomed the second his propeller's whirred into top-speed action, and raced up the sky toward the belly of the aero-sub. "'If only the aero-sub has a blind-spot!' cried Prester Klieg. In that instant a roaring crash sounded in the secret room as the American plane, going full speed, crashed propellers foremost into the belly of the aerosub. And the aerosub, whose brothers had seemed until this moment invincible, did not escape the wrath of the American, though the American went into oblivion with it. For, welded together, American plane and aerosub started the eight thousand feet plunge downward to the sea. "'Watch!' shrieked Munson. Watch! As the aerosub and the plane plunged down through the formation of fighters, the aerosub pilots saw it, and they fled in wild dismay and at top speed from their falling compatriot. Why? For a moment it was not apparent. And then it was. For out of the body of the doomed aerosubs came sheets of golden flame. Not flames of fire! but the golden sheen of that streak which the aero-subs had used against the American planes already out of the fight. The American flyer had crashed into the container, whatever it was, that harnessed the agency through which the minions of Moyenne had destroyed the Stellar and the battleships raped from Hampton Roads. It is liquid, then! shrieked Munson. And it seemed to be. For a second the golden mantle, Strange, awe-inspiring, bathed and rendered invisible the aerosub sub and the plane which had slain her. Then the golden flame vanished utterly, instantly, and in the air where it had been there was nothing. The aerosub sub was gone, and the plane whose mad charge had erased her. "'Her own death-dealing agency destroyed her!' shrieked Munson and the other arrow-subs cut away from the fight to save themselves, because they too carry death and destruction within them!' Then the inner door of the secret room opened and two people entered. One of them, a dazzling beauty with glorious black hair and the tread of a princess, a picture of perfection from jeweled sandals to coiffured hair, was Charmian Kane. Behind her came her brother, whose face was chalky white. But Charmion, as she crossed to Kleeg and kissed him, while her eyes were luminous with love, held her head proudly high, imperious. I know, she said softly to Cleeg, and I am not afraid. I know you will prevent it. Cleeg waved the two to chairs and turned again to Professor Manuel. On a piece of paper he wrote swiftly, using a mode of shorthand known only to the secret agents. Professor, he wrote feverishly, can you reverse the process used in your vibration retarder? Tell me with your eyes, for Moyen may even know this writing, and I am sure he hears what we say here, may even be able to see us." Professor Manuel started and stared deeply into the eyes of Prester Klieg. His face grew thoughtful. He brushed his slender hand over the massive dome of his brow. Hope burned high in the heart of Prester Cleeg Then despite Cleeg's instructions to answer merely by the expression in his eyes, Professor Manuel leaned forward and wrote quickly on the piece of paper Cleeg had used. Two hours. Nothing else, no explanations. But Prester Cleeg knew. Manuel believed he could do it, but he needed two hours in which to perfect his theory and make it workable. Cleeg knew that he had been able to do it in two years or two decades, but still would have been in the nature of a miracle. but two hours, and Moyenne had said that he was preparing to attack at once in two hours. Moyenne, unless the Americas fought against him with every resource at their command, could depopulate half the Western world. Cleeg looked back to the screen. There was not a single American plane in the sky above the graveyard of those vanished warships, and the aerosubs, swift flying as the wind, were racing back to the mothership, scores of miles away. Munson worked with the vibration retarder the sound and vision devices, ranging the sea off the coast to either side of that huge suspended fortress which was the mother-submarine of the aerosubs. Gasps of terror, though the sight was not unexpected, broke from the lips of every person in the secret room. For super-monsters of Moyen were moving to the attack. End of section 3